Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Really. Um, we're, very, we're lucky to have Paul Hynek with us today. Paul has decades of successful experience in finance, technology, cryptocurrency, and entertainment. He's a Wharton MBA and adjunct professor of accounting and finance at Pepperdine University and the creator of startup financial projection software that has raised over a billion dollars for thousands of startups. He was involved in the making of Avatar, Lord of the Rings, Planet of the Apes, and many other films and games. Yes, but, but we can we can ignore all of that because he's a UFO nut. Yes, yes, so there. indeed. Every, all accomplishments go out the window as soon as you engage with the UFOs, I believe, is the rule. And Guilty inc- as charged. An incredible <laughs> legacy on this issue. Your father, J. Allen Hynek, was for the duration a science advisor with Project Blue Book. Is that? So UFOs are the family business of nuttery. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and a strange, a, a un, I'd say a very unique uh, introduction to the UFO phenomena and world and community would be the the one that you had. I don't know life without UFOs. We had flying saucer ornaments on the Christmas tree, UFO contactees over for dinner, which we'd call Tuesday, and it's just <laughs> mm-hmm. part of the fabric of my life and the life of my brothers and sister. Yeah. Now, was there a point? Was there a point when they started? exposing you to it or was there any point that you were sort of sheltered from the, from the work your dad was doing it was just right from immersion all the way through you yeah. knew from the beginning yeah. this is what dad did or at least as a side business or a side investigation yeah was- a later in life side gig you know yeah. he's known as a ufo guy but he's really he was an astronomer and right. a professor mm-hmm. and so the way he thought of himself was as a scientist so we had lots of ufos but we had also had a lot of science, astronomy and things like that growing up. So it wasn't just UFOs. But, yeah, there was no sheltering. There was no don't go in that room, Paul, yeah. nothing like that until you can reach the doorknob. There was no point in history within between your mom and dad where she was the Terry Gar character <laughs> in Close Encounters. You know, the, He's actually the, the, the mashed the, potatoes mountains. Yeah, the, also the same character she played in uh, Oh God. 
um, of the wife who thinks he's crazy. I hate him now. That was well, not, I think that she's a treasure, Terry. Those yeah. moments would have come before my time because yeah. my dad got involved with the Air Force in 1947 and then actively in 1949. And my family, there are three kids, then a gap of 12 years, and me and my little brother. So I imagine there were conversations when the Air Force asked my father to study flying saucers, as they were then known, as to, Alan, how is this going to help you get tenure? Yes. Which was the <laughs> overarching concern. And I, I imagine I'm recreating this this conversation in my mind. But Mimi, it's all of a weekend's worth of work. And I have a security clearance and the Air Force needs me. Mm-hmm. But Alan. So then when it, I, I'm quite sure he had no idea that his active involvement would actually be longer than 20 years with the Air Force, then can some, some consulting on the side, and then continued involvement with UFOs. Yes, and that was a lifelong advocacy. Later much. in life, yeah, yes. Yeah. Right. And so by the time you and your brother came along, the whole family was immersed in it. Yes. Suffice much. it to say that all my conscious memories have of family life have UFOs involved in some capacity or another. Yeah. And was Blue Book a the, the awareness of this? Were, were you around for when he was working for Blue Book? And, and was he of a skeptical nature initially at the time? By the time you were aware of the conversation, had he changed his feelings about it at all? Or what was the journey for, for him, as you understand it, from skeptic to believer? So he officially, Blue Book was officially terminated in January of 1970. Um, And at that point, I was seven years old. So I knew he was involved with the Air Force when I was a very little kid. I didn't quite understand the gestalt or the context of what was going on and learned about that soon afterwards because when he left the Air Force, sort of the muzzle was taken off. Right. And he was much more free, and he felt much more free to speak about it all. So that's when I heard more conversations as opposed to just seeing – you know, Air Force personnel come to the house, et cetera. Did he see anything that gave, did he, did he? No. He was never an experience. No, no, no. Nothing I'm I'm just saying it was there. He he was blind. He never saw anything. Anything that (laughs) came through that um, he ever talked to you about of a particular uh, shock to him or of that nature regarding UFOs? So there were a couple things that he thought were puzzling. But he had a pretty high bar, so you know, he created the classification system, Close Encounters. Which is incredible. First, That's second, third kind. But there's also culture. two before that of daylight disks and nocturnal lights. So, oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah, so no. a close, close Encounter, the first kind, is something, say, within 500 feet. The things he saw were not within 500 feet, so they wouldn't even register on the Close Encounter scale, hmm. but it would be daylight disks. So that's interesting, but he's just one person. Mm-hmm. And it's just one witness's testimony. There's a lot of strange things you see in the sky. Plus, but hold on. But your dad did actually see daylight disks. Yes. He, okay, I did not know that. Now, Personally, he saw yes. daylight disks. Yeah. Okay. Now, but I don't want to ascribe too much significance to that. Nor did I think he want to because it's one person seeing something interesting in the sky. Okay. Now, um, he viewed himself. He and he's used this phrase as the arbiter of the noise level. So he wasn't, there are really two types of people in the UFO field. There are those who are experiencers and those who are not. Um, And 
he was not what he would call an experiencer. He was maybe a, a sighter or a witness of two interesting objects. But his role was more valuable not for having personal conviction or personal experience, but for being able to tease or to help collect the data and then tease patterns out of the data as an impartial judge who's letting yeah. the chips fall where they may just to get to the bottom of the phenomena, no matter what it is or what they are. It's, it's almost like there's a level of purity of not being an experiencer that makes makes the scientific rigors more serious or, or taken more seriously. Yeah, and, and not to imply that experiencers are in any way tainted. No, um, but, but, to, but to, uh, to people who are going to judge yeah. the information. Yeah, because I think he felt that there were three groups he had to be mindful of. The Air Force and the government, UFO believers, and mainstream science. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty de- difficult balancing act. If you imagine the Venn diagram of the teeny bit of overlap they have, and that's the sort of circle he swam in. And I think he felt he had to keep each of those three very distinct groups at least mildly displeased. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, today it's totally different. <laughs> that, that science is totally on board. The military is completely transparent. Right. According to a recent Pew poll, 51% of Americans believe that aliens of one form or another have visited us. Yes. So now it would have been my dad's exhortation to scientists to join the mainstream and abandon their fringe radical position that there are no aliens. Yes, and Avi Loeb has just <clears throat> echoed that recently. He just wrote a paper That's right. uh, saying that extraordinary, evidence, extraordinary uh, uh, claims need extraordinary evidence. Extraordinary evidence needs extraordinary funding, I guess was the That's right. Title That's right. And, and Avi Loeb is at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory where my father worked mm-hmm. in the 1950s. <laughs> He was there in conjunction with Harvard and the Smithsonian to place observatories around the world to track what would become the Apollo program. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that was, yeah. that was where, what he was working on. That's and, wild. But again, and you have, uh, sort of going back to my, my quip, if you would call it that earlier, the notion that even you look at somebody like Avi Loeb and the reputation he had before he said what he said about Oumuamua, mm-hmm. which for those who don't know was the uh, interstellar Object, cigar, cigar. If you if you take that drawing as the yeah. if you go with Avi Loeb, it's more it was more of a a flat sail. Mm-hmm. Um, but because he came out and said he thought it was in interstellar uh, uh, extraterrestrial technology, the notion was not to go. Oh, this guy's a really serious guy with the tremendous credentials behind him and a record of doing amazing things, uh, and he's saying something serious about uh, possible extraterrestrial life, we should look at it seriously. The response instead is, oh, we should dismiss everything else he's ever done in his career. Yeah. And that seems to be a singular response to the UFO story, uh, that most other fields of you know, really serious people step up with information. They get taken seriously, even if it's uh, something that people aren't familiar with. But with UFOs, it's we need to just dismiss everything about this person, call him a believer, and, and lock the door. Yeah, there's a fair amount of stigma still. There's much less than there were, uh, say, back in the 50s and the 60s. But there's also, I think, somewhat prosaic reasons for that. So imagine that, say, let's say you're an ancient, or let's say you're an anthropologist and or an archaeologist, and you're aware of various alternative theories as to, like, when the Americas were inhabited. 
maybe 10,000 years earlier. Like Graham Hancock champions this. Mm-hmm. And he's got some pretty interesting evidence. Okay, so you're aware of Graham Hancock and others that have this evidence, but you know there's maybe 10 different competing alternative theories. You don't really know which one has the most merit on the face. You've got a grant to write. You've got grad students and undergraduate students to teach. You've got a book tour coming up. You're married and you've got kids. And you've got other things going on in your life. You just don't have time. So it's not always necessarily, and this is something that I I saw Michael Shermer, a friend of mine, say. And I think that there's a lot to that. So in addition to the disinformation campaigns that the CIA has run and the sort of far-fetched notion that a lot of these sort of more lucid or lurid aspects of the phenomena I get in the paper, it's just people are busy. And there's not a lot of incentive for a scientist to lean into this. So it's not always like this dogmatic firewall, Mm. you know, Spartan shield wall holding off the heretics. Yeah, although now it's like Avi Loeb is saying there is a push within academia to explicitly ban or bar uh, discussions and research into into UAPs. That could be the case. I I mean, both of those could exist at the same time, right? No, and I think there's definitely, I think there's practical, I think most people don't ever give it enough thought to even be, to be a part of a conspiracy against UFOs. Right. They're just, I think, so well indoctrinated into dismissing it. Yeah, and there, there are, there's, there's factual reports of paid disinformation campaigns. Yes. And that, you know, like, so my father was involved with Project Blue Book, as you mentioned, Tom, <clears throat> and that was not a serious scientific effort. It was a public relations exercise to tamp down hysteria. So as part of that, you know, the Air Force's job is to, you know, wield superior power in the air and to defend us against those who would do that to us, but also create the perception that they've got this covered. Right. So if there's a bunch of little green men flying around with ray guns, that starts to weaken the public trust in the Air Force. So... For them, it's a per- perfectly legitimate exercise to engage in, you know, free-form public relations to make people not concerned about that threat. Yeah. Is it correct that the irony is that uh, a rash of sightings prompts Project Blue Book to be created in the first place? In that the then create a program to tamp down hysteria created by those very sightings rather than to look into the sightings themselves? Or is that too much of a simplification of what Project Blue Book was doing? Well, so my father called Project Blue Book the Society for the Explanation of the Uninvestigated mm-hmm. because they were not looking mm-hmm. to reverse right. engineer propulsion systems or get to the truth. They were looking just to keep people calm and comfortable to go to sleep that night. So, in a Cold War environment. Yeah, right, in a yeah. supercharged Cold War environment and with rising nuclear fears. And so if you can do that by hiring Philip Class or other disinformation agents, you know, that that furthers your mission. And kind of the handbook for doing it was written by the Robertson panel, right? Yeah. So in 1950, so project, there was Project Sign, Project Grudge, Project Blue Book in 1949. And then as part of Project Blue Book in 1952, the CIA put together something called the Robertson panel, which were professors that had no involvement with the phenomenon. My father was, I think, an associate or assistant professor at those hearings and was not asked to speak. And they just presented bogus evidence. And that allowed 
the U.S. Air Force, who was always very sensitive to the credibility of academics, to say, nothing to see here, folks. Be on your way. Now, it's widely felt that also in 1952 was the creation of the Air Intelligence Service Squadrons, who were tasked with, within six hours of going to any crashed air vehicle in the continental United States and scooping it up and also, more metaphorically, containing fallout from mm. reports of it. They had Russian speakers on their team, too, because it's not exclusively guaranteed or around UFOs. And that's where many people think the men in black came from, because that would have been their purview. Mm -hmm. So as of 1952, you have a clear bifurcation. Project Blue Book, hey, go out in front of the cameras and tell people it's okay. Air Intelligence Service Squadrons, you go out to Roswell or where have you. Mm -hmm. Did, and your, do you think your father was aware of these these are these secret group. access programs? Would that be considered, or was that more publicly? Uh, let's let's say they're they're more classified, and 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 you know we tend to think of the United States government as this monolithic block yeah. acting in unison, but nothing could be further from the truth. You've got warring fiefdoms, generals that don't like each other, different departments and agencies who are actively working at counter at cross purposes. So, do you feel like today, because in some ways, twenty seventeen felt a little bit like a Rubicon, like we went to a new place in the conversation, seems like. But yet certain kind of narrative threads are the same. The closer you seem to get to something, the more cracks appear in the wall, the more it seems like people rush in and suddenly, oh, wait, wait, no, 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 no. It seemed like there was maybe more dialogue happening, but we actually want to start. It does feel like that push-pull still exists, but do you feel like we're in a better place now, a closer place now in the UAP conversation? What's your, you've had a, a good glimpse of it over a few decades? I don't know. Um, this is a very murky field, and it's only after many years go by can you reliably evaluate events and people. So, yes, in 2017, the New York Times, the newspaper of record, <clears throat> did kind of an about-face. It always poo-pooed UFOs. And they came out basically with Leslie Kane, who you know, mm -hmm. Dave, said, hey, there's something going on here. And there's been some hanky-panky with the government. Um, and certainly the U.S. Navy has had a much different public stance. You know, the Air Force was always, right. nothing to see here, folks. Please disperse. Navy is saying, hey, we see hundreds of these things in the air, in the water. We don't know what they are. And frankly, we're concerned both about potential risk to national security, but immediately for the safety of our aviators. So that's a, a watershed, different, added, public-facing attitude. Yes. On mm -hmm. But even within the New York Times, you had then, I forget his name, Barnes, who wrote basically an op-ed piece that was not in the op, on the op-ed page, pre-debunking the, uh, the UAP report uh, months before it came out. Yeah. So obviously, was fed something. So even within the New York Times, there's still that push-pull going on. Just another example of an entity not being, you know, in lockstep with each other. Right, mm -hmm. right. And yeah. as, uh, I mean, the uh, the question, I guess, for me, newer to the sort of deep research into this issue, is that just as government isn't monolithic, conspiracies aren't necessarily monolithic. It's just disorganized obstruction, maybe not a single entity saying shut this down and we'll put all our tentacles to work it's just 
skeptics, disbelieve people mm-hmm. that want to just, especially in this day and age with the dialogue yeah. and social media, just to have a counterpoint gives you a platform. So it's And there's another layer to this I find fascinating. So my father and Carl Sagan knew each other pretty well, and they had some public debates. And one, one day they're talking, and Carl says to my dad, hey, um, Alan, if there are all these UFOs floating around the sky, how come we don't have reports of them entering and leaving the atmosphere? It's a fair question. So not that long after that, um, Carl was at NORAD, and he happened to ask one of the sort of frontline observers, hey, do you see things that you can't explain? And I said, yes, sir. Oh, wow, that was quick. (laughs) Uh, What do you do with those? Well, sir, those are uncorrelated targets. We're not, that's not what we're looking at. So we dispose of those. And it wasn't some kind of black handed directive from on high to not let any truth permeate, you know, the, the shield. So it was just that it was in his job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They were looking for, ICBMs right, or, right. Bomb, or bombers. And they don't have time nor the curiosity to figure out what's that. It's not a threat. Dismiss it. So think about all the various organs of the government and the diagnostic and observational capabilities manned by people whose job isn't to spot anything weird and do something about it, but only identify threats. Mm-hmm. Now you can pile some conspiracy on top of that, and now you've got someone that's going to last decades. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is odd because that kind of correlates to what Ryan Graves, the uh, Navy pilot who was involved with all the sightings off of Virginia, um, said. He said, well, when we when we go out, we never went out to look at UFOs. He said, we always went out to do other things. Right. And we would when we would sometimes. Funny thing happened on the way to the mission. Yeah. And we would sometimes go out and look for UFOs in our spare time. Like you right. said, like when they'd be in a holding pattern when they're w- ready to go back to the uh, the aircraft carrier, because sometimes you're in, you have to wait your turn to land. And he said, and, then, and those periods of times they would go off and try to do some, ex- you know, exploring. But the rest of the time, you know, they said we're just there to do a job, mm-hmm. and we're not we don't have the time or the resources to go off and examine this. When it just when it steps into our field of view, then we look at it. And most of the the biggest thing they had was they kept having to scrub their uh, missions. Because of how many objects were in the area they're supposed to be doing their training. They're everywhere. Yeah. 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 So it's interesting when you say, well, the NORAD is kind of the same thing. It's just, well, that's not what I'm here to do. And that's a military mindset. Yeah. And so what can be viewed, easily viewed as a cover up is just an Air Force doing its job. Mm -hmm. So you have all sorts of reasons why information that might be of interest to people that are looking for UFOs, may have been discarded without any kind of sinister motives. People want to keep their jobs, you know, yeah. just even the, yeah. the imaginary conversation between your mother and your father of like, you know, what what will getting into this yeah. lead to? What will this right. mean? What, you know, yeah, curiosity is great. What are we going to ultimately yeah. do about and it? And if There's... we do disinformation campaigns and make this seem ridiculous, the next pilot who sees something is going to be less likely to say, you know what? I sense some career advancement potential here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing. There was, I mean, as you say, there's there's well-intentioned suppression of the information, which is just by, you know, it's you're siloed. You have a job to do, you do it. But then I think higher up the chain of command, there's definitely uh, deliberate, as you said, disinformation and yeah. ridicule. I mean, what the Robertson uh, panel recommended, which was uh, 
a, 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 a focused program of ridicule, debunking, character assassination, and uh, exploiting commercial media. It's like Espionage 101. Yeah. So let's let's feed stories to mm-hmm. the news. Let's feed stories to Hollywood. Let's create the archetype of who is a UFO um, witness and who isn't. You know, so the you know the toothless guy in a trailer park becomes every UFO witness. Um, and even now, that I mean, that was they I mean, they they started this in the fifties, and even now the stigma created by it, you don't you don't really need to re, you don't really need to enforce it anymore. It's so ingrained in the culture. Yeah, just occasional callbacks. Yeah, so people just so there are just infinite numbers of people willing to volunteer to continue keeping the stigma going, mm-hmm. just without knowing it. There's a symbi- a real symbiotic relationship between entertainment and the UAP issue and the UFO issue. And we've talked yeah. about this a little bit of just does the interest undermine the issue in a way? I mean, we have, you know, through our movies and through, th- you know, I mean, it's there's this the, the natural sensational aspect to the topic and and that fuels curiosity in an audience for it. And yet also undermines the credibility of it at the same time. And I I don't know if it's an answerable question, but it's sort of like, is there, it almost felt like even at AlienCon, for example, which, you know, it's this amazing gathering, there's amazing speakers, amazing conversations happening, and there's still this sensational aspect that I don't know if it serves ultimately, or it feels like there's a little bit of a dissonance. Oh, and then there's just entertainment, right? Yeah. You, you've got a lot of people who, you know, UFOs and aliens, they kind of touch a nerve, right? And they're, aliens and zombies are always going to sell. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Prometheus, and I've been on Ancient Aliens show several times, um, that's entertainment. That's not research. And so you've got uh, a lot of people who have great incentive to make these entertainment programs that are unabashedly entertainment. They're not looking to move the needle on serious research. Um, and Ancient Aliens was very smart coming up with a strategy of, you know, they don't show the Nazca lines and the pyramids and say, Here's clear evidence that the Nazca Lions were drawn by time travelers from the pyramids. They say, could right. the Nazca Lions sure. have been drawn yeah, by space question. travelers? Yeah. Yes. And it's worked, it's worked out very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think they've now. I love, be- I love the phrase ancient alien theorists, theorists. Yeah. claim. Yeah. I don't think I've been introduced as such on yeah. the show. <laughs> yeah. But, that, but that, it is entertaining. And these questions yeah. are yeah. really cool and interesting yeah. questions. Um, and I guess it feels like the the. There's there's sort of two two worlds right now occupying the debate, or at least on the side of UAPs, which you know there's sort of more academic and kind of scientific research, more people coming to it, and and uh, I don't know, it just feels like will that get drowned out by? Can they serve one another, or are they just going to be this sort of friction between the two? Um, because it does feel like there sh- needs to be, I don't know, new new forums. Doesn't have to remove things, but just new forums to talk about it, so that it's given. So there's not the easy darts to throw at it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because there. Are, I mean, I guess you could say there are, for for lack of a better term, more serious programming on on the uh, UFO mm-hmm. story. Uh, things like the the show Leslie Kane just did for right. uh, Hulu and which was uh, great. That was a really Nat Geo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was really which cool. yeah, which feels serious and journalistic, but it's not getting the same ratings as Ancient Aliens is getting. And but then you've got a, a show that feels like kind of a hybrid, which is the uh, Skinwalker Ranch mm-hmm. series. I don't know what your feelings are about that, but it feels like it's a show that is doing s- science, 
but is being presented with a History Channel's mode of production. Yeah, it's the same production company, Prometheus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's and I have to say, far more rewarding than than watching Mysteries of Oak Island. I just have to, you know, which is a, a much more slow burn if you're going to wait for those sort of things I mean, to there occur. There's a Canadian in the house, you know. I understand, but <laughs> yeah. Dave has to take his lumps because it is it is what it is, you know. But I, hey, look, I've watched hey, that hey. show for 10 years, you know. I've, I've lived through everything on Oak Island. But Skinwalker, more happens in 10 minutes hey, look, at that if, place. If you can make a high-rating show out of digging in a tunnel for no, 10 geniuses. years. I mean, look. Yes, <laughs> genius. I mean, look, no question. Right? I'm still watching. I've I mean, never watched it, and, oh, and that was the leading show out. to Project Blue Book, the TV show about which was excellent, which so, is great. Yeah, and I got to say one thing: uh, the, the Project Blue Book series enjoyed it, but one thing uh, took me right out of it. Uh, what was the fear of the Van Dyke? Uh, they did not go with your dad's beard mm. on the show. <laughs> was that an actor's rebellion? <laughs> Could very well. Have well, been. the other, the, the most frequent. Um, complaint I get is about his pipe. He didn't have the pipe. But he did in one scene. Um, so one of my favorite days was I was on set. This is the second season. So my brother and I were consultants on the show. Mm-hmm. And often consultants are just in the wings and they're called when there's a question. And so I asked the executive producer, hey, look, both my brother and I have a lot of production experience in Hollywood. Um, can we read the pre-production scripts and come visit the set? They said, sure, fine. So I went to the set multiple times and we read the scripts and gave a lot of input. And but and we had to we told the family, look, we have a chance to be involved with this. Uh, we can't dictate this. We don't have control. Right. But we have influence. And that's really a function of the relationship you develop. So we made a very good relationship with the creator and the showrunner. I'm, I'm friends with them to this day. And um, in the first season, there's a, a scene where my mom, my TV mom, is in a hardware store looking to get a bomb shelter, which never happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the show is about authenticity, not accuracy. Mm -hmm. And so the way the scene plays out uh, in the show is that the clerk starts mansplaining to her, well, you know, when your hubby gets back into town, then I'll help him, little lady. And she quips back, no, wifey is building this, and you'll tell her how now. So I got a couple calls from my family members saying, that's exactly what Mimi would have said. And I said, I know, I wrote that line. <laughs> so, but the episode I really like was uh, season two, I think episode six, and it's about the movie Close Encounters. And it's that show where he finally breaks out the pipe. So I, I took little videos on my phone of the, the mothership and the alien walking out and my dad's reaction. And there was this one part in there where Aiden Gillen, who's a fantastic actor, yes. really sort of channeled my dad. Um, and so that was really surreal sort of because here I am uh, and I had a cameo role in the show. So that the last part of the episode, there's this ruggishly, ruggedly good looking cameraman who I gave a backstory to. His name is Lance. He had wardrobe and all that. <laughs> and I said, hey, what kind of line should I say? Oh, Paul, you really don't need to. Your presence is so commanding already. Yeah. <laughs> right? I said, I, okay, That's I got nice you. And, nice so the, my TV parents are walking towards the camera. You see Lance. Uh, in the camera crane and then just sort of going up in the air. So after, you know, cut, okay, um, they kept me up there in the crane, not not all night, just for a little (laughs) while, to talk to the cast and the crew. I already met most of them, but it was nice to talk on behalf of the family and say, hey, guys, you're doing good work here because it's works of fiction like Close Encounters and of this is sort of half fiction that bring more people into it. Um, So 
So it was the episode. Um, I have a cameo role in the TV show about my father in the episode about the movie in which my father was a consultant and had a cameo. Mm -hmm. And then I went drinking with Aiden Gill until seven o'clock the next morning. Well <laughs> yeah. done. Well done. He's Irish. No, well, that, well, that explains that. And for the record, having the super villain from Game of Thrones play your TV father, not super creepy at all. Yeah, <laughs> little finger yeah. was uh, yeah in the house. Hopefully, that wasn't what it was actually like growing up. No, he, yeah. he, no, didn't have that level of conspiratorial, yeah. right. and, uh, you know, Machiavellian uh, approach to life. Right. And somebody once asked me, "Why would you want him? To, why did you have to play your father?" <laughs> First of all, it's not my choice, and I don't think I could have picked anybody better. But the fact that you're acting so emotionally means he's a good actor. He's not only that; he's been in like five thousand movies and TV shows. Yes. And before Project Blue Book came out, he was in uh, his native Dublin in a supermarket, and some guy came up to him and said, hey, what you working on? He said, oh, a TV show called Project Blue Book. And the guy said, oh, about Heineck. Mm. So Aiden said he liked that because now someone's not just saying, how could you do that to <laughs> yeah. you know, the Stark family or whoever? Mm -hmm. But yeah, and, but to be fair, there's not even one episode where he's discussing Lonnie Zamora while banging a whore. That's true. So, well, that was planned for season. Three. I don't know if that was going to yeah. turn the corner. Yes. That's make the their pivot. <laughs> yeah. But, Did you uh, have a? You grew up with this. You you like were consulting on the show about your life, to a degree. Um, were you afforded a moment where you, for yourself, said, "I believe I believe this is." occurring i believe we're being visited i, I don't want to put words oh, in your mouth oh. either but i'm just a, a, like a personal moment a, outside of the, about the underlying a, phenomenon not the, the show not the show yeah, your, your actual journey I is mean, there a journey to belief like in the, in the reality of it like as a kid are you at, at, are you at any point just going i think my dad's crazy with this stuff so i don't think my father believed in them because scientists don't usually use the word belief, right? They accept data. Mm -hmm. So my whole life, I have been raised with sort of the scientific method and healthily skeptical. And I think, you know, 95% of the universe to our best knowledge now is dark matter and dark energy about which you have no understanding. Mm -hmm. So I don't rule things out very easily. Um, the universe is vast. And it seems to me inarguable that there's life that we would recognize elsewhere. If it comes here, that's a different matter. Um, I have questions about why extraterrestrials would first be able to find us. Yes, we've been beaming episodes of I Love Lucy low these many decades. Still, the universe is a very large place. Why they would come here, how they would find us, why they would come here, if they're able to do space travel whether it's manipulating time or energy or what, what have you, there's real no pressing need for them to come here. Mm -hmm. we, they don't need our M. Night Shyamalan gold or water or anything like that. I don't think they're intrigued by our non-Borg-like individual concept of human love. So I get kind of hung up with that. So I lean more towards interdimensional origins. Mm -hmm. I think there is a phenomena here, and probably phenomena with different aspects. There could well be some extraterrestrial component, but I don't think it's limited solely to that. So my three brothers and my sister and I are all pretty much the same, that we've grown up just thinking, there's something here. 
you know, there are, I think there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who are okay with questions they can't answer and those who are not okay with having their answers being questioned. A lot of people have a hard time with UFOs and aliens because they say, okay, there's some evidence here, but I don't get, where do they come from? Right. And since they can't answer that to their satisfaction, they just shelve it. It's more of an intellectual juggling act to say, wow, there's a phenomena here, something going on. I don't know where they're from, and I'm okay with that. A lot of people don't find that a comfortable resting point. But I was, I didn't have to journey. I didn't have to do anything. That's just sort of like the the default starting position, and that's where I am today now. Mm -hmm. And that should be the starting point from any scientific investigation, though, which is why it's hard to understand why science has so much trouble with this. That the starting point of science is always a phenomenon that can't be explained and trying to figure it out. Yeah, I, I think you know there should be some amount of heightened skepticism with scientists because there should be a bar that you have to um, get past to have people take you seriously. So I don't mm -hmm. I don't begrudge that. No, but I remember hearing Carl Sagan say, well, if you, if somebody reports there's a dinosaur uh, running around in the jungles of Africa, uh, should we drop everything and go and research it? And I say, no. But if, say, over a million people report the same dinosaur in the jungles of Africa, you might get curious. And that's kind of the situation that science is in right now uh, with the UAP issue or UFO issue. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you well, know. I find it also your, but your dad seemed to really affirm eyewitnesses, which yeah. may not be considered or or kind of I don't know wrongly or rightly con considered the the right evidence the data but it it seems like it falls on eyewitnesses to to be the source evidence for these phenomena they blink in they blink out they're in the sky you know and so trusting the you know just like we see now with these top gun pilots most trained observers in the world I don't know who else is trained to see things in the sky better than these people and yet they're doubted and they're afraid to come forward because yeah. they'll be undermined. I think it's a testament to your father's work that it seemed like he went out. Um, was that conscious on his part that they had that the eyewitnesses had not been respected uh, up to that point, that this is this qualifies as evidence, um, uh, you know, valuable data versus being able to break something down on a photograph or see radar images or. So good question. I mean, he realized early on that he was not studying UFOs. He was studying UFO reports. Um, and he was trained as an astrophysicist. He had to, on the fly, on the job, develop soft skills. And, you know, one of the things about in, in the show Project Blue Book and other shows where they have who they feel is very smart scientists, they tend to sort of vulcanize them, make them all about logic. And physicists aren't about logic. They're about science. And so he was not that way. He had over-fondness for puns. He's a very warm guy. And he realized pretty early on that he's talking to people. What they're saying may or may not be true, and they may or may not believe it. It's hard to always know. But for many of them, he, he recognized genuine trauma. Uh, imagine if you think you've seen something out of this world and not only that, but now you're ostracized by your family and your community. You know, not everybody goes on book tours afterwards. So 
he was very understanding and very patient with people recounting fantastical stories about things that happened. He was very, um, I would say, kind and understanding. So he had to sort of become a field psychologist yeah. on the fly. Yeah, and they, they, brought that, they brought that out in the show as well. So it doesn't mean that he's saying what they saw is true. Like Calvin Parker, who's a friend of mine from who had the sighting in Pascagoula, Mississippi, 1973, one of the most famous abduction cases. Something I found out from Calvin recently was that it happened on a Friday and they reported the police over the weekend. And both he and Charlie Hickson went back to the shipyards where they worked in Louisiana early on the morning of Monday, on Monday morning. And my father was waiting in the HR office at like 730 in the morning. And they're like, they have no idea how he got there. I, I'm sure he was on the go in the Gulf Coast already on, on other business. But my father liked that case very much. And one of the things about that case that's interesting is when Calvin and Charlie were likely being interrogated by the police, the police and left you, the room. And I'm sorry, can you just give us a sense of what they reported in the first place? Yes. Yeah, so what they reported was, and has now since been corroborated by numerous additional witnesses, as a craft came down, Aliens, very spiky, heady-looking aliens came out. Uh, Calvin was then asleep for most of the time, and they were placed into the ship, examined, and let go. Um, and like I said, there's multiple witnesses for this. And so it's yeah. one of the most famous cases. And They were fishing at the time, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and somebody asked my father, knowing that he had investigated the case and talked to them personally, do you think that case actually happened? And my father's response was, how the hell should I know? I wasn't there. I believe that they believe it happened. And that's as far as a scientist would go. It's the same thing about Dr. Heineck. Is there a phenomenon here? Yes, by definition, there's a phenomena. But that doesn't mean I know where it or they come from. Mm -hmm. And that's where the, ga the gathering of evidence comes from. Yeah, and, and sort of finding the... out you know, emergent patterns in the data. Mm-hmm. Um... Because, like, you know, we talked about the, the our knowledge of the universe, that basically we've been able to narrow down 5% of everything that exists. Yeah, yes. That's it. 5% five, is not a great track record. But we also, they, is, they, there's no direct evidence that dark matter and dark energy exists, like zero right. direct evidence. But we're spending billions and billions of dollars on trying to figure it out. That 5% is interesting because of the 12,000-odd cases that Project Blue Book officially investigated – they even with that institutional impetus to stamp everything as solved, they still couldn't bring themselves to quote solve over seven hundred cases or five percent. Yes, and that five percent again gets trotted out by skeptics. And again, skeptics, it, everyone should be skeptical. I'm skeptical, uh, but not blind. Uh, yeah, but you. So, but the the thing is always brought up is everyone always says you know ninety five percent of that stuff is easily explained, and and I think most serious people on the subject say yes, of course it is, but that doesn't make the five percent any less remarkable. Right. In and same so, ways, like it'd be like dismissing the entire universe because we because we can only identify five percent of yeah, it. Yeah, which would suck because we're that five percent. Yes. So yeah, I used <clears> to have a joke in my stand up. I said, "What if there's another universe uh, created of dark matter and dark energy?" And they look at the universe and they go, oh, my God, 5% is missing. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> We're a rounding error. Yeah. So Michael Shermer, who's the founder of Skeptic Magazine. Yes. We had a debate last summer. We've become friends. And he made that point. And in my opposition research, 
with all deference to Michael before that, I saw that he had made that point. And so I came ready for, you know, armed for bear with that point saying, yes, you're right, Michael. If there's a new incident, it's likely to fall on that 95%. But Project Blue Book, and over the years, that 5% has held fairly constant. Mm -hmm. And that 5% is now thousands of cases. So even the, you would expect that most things can and should be identified. We've got telescopes. We've got computers. We have experts. But when you have that intransigent 5% that you can't explain, and it's thousands of cases, that is significant. Yes. And, and do you think you had an impact on him with that? I had an impact on him because I had the first five minutes, and I really, again, with all deference to my friend, sort of kneecapped him because I'd seen his debates. I'd seen his key points talking about how UFOs are, you know, sky gods for non-believers and things like this. And I weaved those through, and I also set to reframe the debate from are there aliens here to is there enough evidence to – make a reasonable person lean towards thinking that, yes, there may well be something. And I also made a, a strong point to say, we don't need to explain where they come from or what they eat or whatever. All we need to do is say, does the evidence suggest that something is here as inconvenient as that may be? Yes. I think that's, well, the reason I'll explain our punctuation on our logo is basically that, I think, is that journey. It's that idea of being curious about the subject, a little startled by what you find out, and then just sort of accepting that a reality exists, that a UFO reality exists, which isn't to say you know what it is, that you've explained anything, but but then just it would, accepting then it would be it. IFO. Yes, but just and just accepting that there is a reality that needs to be explored, I without think. having the origin answer. Yes, right, because we don't require that of most other science. Mm -hmm. But that's likely the holdup in terms of there being any sort of official government presentation of UAP evidence that, okay, everyone, here it is. Yes. Thousands and thousands and thousands of sightings have taken place over the course of decades. Yeah. It does exist. And we have no fucking idea what they are. Yes. And we have no answers to what they want is. And, the, and if the, I'm making the, if I'm making the kind of argument I don't necessarily agree with, but the, the devil's advocate, this is why the Department of Defense doesn't want to necessarily announce anything. The press, I, it creates a powerlessness. Uh, Let's do a role play. And I've done this in at UFO conferences. We are the top brass of the United States Air Force. We have all the secrets. We know everything that we've captured, be it little green men, the ships that come in, the magic wands, whatever they have. We've got it all. We are the conclave. And we are going to determine if we release this information. Now, again, we are not UFO curious people. We are mil career military Air Force generals, cream of the crop. Okay, now, whatever it is that we know and whatever it is that we have, raise your hand if we should release this immediately to the public. In our role-playing game? Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll go for the yes. Okay. I'm an Air Force, you know, I'm, You're I'm an Air, Air Force, Force general. Died in the wool patriot. Uh, can I ask a question about what I know? I, do we know just what we see? We see little bodies. We see a ship. We've, well, I mean, we, we've this, maybe this, studied, tried this, to study a little yeah, bit. This, we know everything. This ranges the spectrum from ranges. we've got, you know, Roswell, we got everything. Whatever it is that we have, should we release it? See, your hand didn't go up. 
Um, Dave's did. Yeah. Um, now, when I do, I did that at a MUFON symposium. MUFON, the largest UFO mm-hmm. group. Not one hand went up in fifty. Mm-hmm. And this was during a panel. I was on. I'm on a panel where they're talking about the editorial schedule and time frame for disclosure. And I said something to affect the look. I don't give a rat's ass what the U.S. government says or does. They've lost the leadership position. It's between citizens and science, and I can speak more to that if you like. The train is at the station. They can hop on the caboose, but they're not driving the train. And I did that role play, and from people that are agitated about the government not releasing stuff, within one minute out of 50 people, not one hand went up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that is my answer to... Will the government release information? I'll go one step further, since you asked. I don't think they should. Now, it's not what I want. But if I'm in the Air Force, it's not my job to release technology to reduce our dependency on fossil fuels. It's not my job to better society because we have free energy or or anything like that. It's my job to kick ass. And if I'm in the catbird seat with some technology, I am not about to release that. And if we yeah. had successfully reversed propulsion systems like a lot of people I know claim we have, then I think they'd be speaking English in Beijing right now. Mm-hmm. Yes, I totally agree. Yeah. If we had I, I, And better English in Canada. And um, God, let's hope so. And if and if an adversary hey. and if an ad- adversary had it, we would all be speaking Cantonese. <laughs> yeah. And, That's right. And it's also, OJ. I, I point out when people talk about, oh, it's probably some black project technology that hasn't become public yet. And first of all, I always point out, well, of everything that's ever become public that was once a black project, nothing has ever been anything but an incremental improvement on previous technology. Right. right. Uh, you know, like the, the stealth bomber is essentially the exact same device that the Wright brothers flew. There's no fundamental difference between the two aircraft. Uh, so it's just been incremental improvements yeah, at exploiting n- that science. Yeah. Now, um, do you know Eric Weinstein? I have met him, and okay. I know of him. Okay. So I spent uh, about seven hours with him last week, and he's got a very that different That sounds exhausting. <laughs> well, he's, he's just a brilliant guy, Yeah. but he's got a, a, an idea or um, a belief that he's aired publicly that towards the end of the 50s, and the beginning of the 60s, something happened. that Some leading physicists disappeared from the scene, and that sent physics down a rat hole of bogus string theory pursuit. He feels something may well have happened then, that there may be um, somebody who was able to harness technology of a kind that we really can't imagine now, which is the far cry from the incremental that we seem to see publicly. Mm-hmm. So... Well, I also go, but we know of one nation on Earth that has never developed anything that they haven't used, and that's the United States that we know of. I mean, the only, the only, the only country that's ever dropped an atomic bomb. Um, and I, and I can't think of one other. When you say that, it's almost like, oops, our bad. <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to think of. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> like, you know, we know that it just that seems unlikely to me that if that if the U.S. had developed any technology that that was that much of a leapfrog that would change the world that profoundly. Right, both in offensive capabilities yeah. and subjugation, but also just overall, just or just to show, hey, don't mess with us. You know, you thought the atomic bomb was something? 
Get a load of mm-hmm. my anti-gravity ray gun over here. Mm-hmm. Word to the wise. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think it's hard to believe that would be not shown to everybody. Plus, I mean, we've had possible. people, Bob Lazar and others, who have made all sorts of claims about uh, secret technologies and Element 115 and the like. Personally, I just haven't seen enough credible claims to make me convinced that we do have all this super cool stuff. I'm just. You don't, I, and, you don't think hardware is sitting in a garage somewhere? You it don't may think well be. Away it, may, it may well, well be. And I, yeah. I know, I know people who I would consider unimpeachable who have stories about this. I just don't know. And I'm also very careful to not believe things I want to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm from Chicago, Illinois, one state over from Missouri. So, um, is there stuff? I don't know. I don't say there isn't. And, I, and there's some very strong evidence to suggest that there may well be, but I just don't know personally. I'm, I'm inclined to believe that if there is, and again, I, to me it's still an if, although I've had some people move me closer to there is. Um, but if there is, that the question is, can we make sense of it and can we exploit it in any meaningful way? Right. And my, right. it seems to me the logical answer is no, we haven't been able to figure it out. Right. We've, we um, may have had this, but we, we can't turn it into useful knowledge. Yeah, it's it would be sort of a combination of science and magic as opposed to engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was Michael Shermer again who made the point that for that to work, that technology they brought here would have to be within such a narrow range for us to understand and actually make use of it. Mm-hmm. And maybe we've made use of some of it, if you believe Philip Corso's story. That we, you know, that that recovered technology from Roswell, was funneled to different uh, groups working on different types of technology, but only after they were already on that path. So you know, if somebody was halfway to developing fiber optics, right, he would say, "Well, I got this thing in the vault. I'll give oh, it to them." Oh, okay, right, yeah, you know? sort of, right. So look at this to thing. Provide Maybe a little bit of air you. cover. Maybe this will help you out with your fiber yeah. optic study. Yeah. Um, but, but the but the gravitic propulsion, I guess, if if it exists, we don't know how to make it work. We don't know how to replicate it. We don't know how to use it. And because I'm convinced that if the United States, uh, so you you're know, saying there's like maybe a saucer hitting the ceiling of a hangar somewhere. <laughs> maybe, yeah, yeah. And a guy going, okay, now just jump, jump. I can only can make we just it fly that and yeah. just show everybody that, and yeah. we'll just you know we'll take credit for this if we can yeah. figure out how to fly it. And so, it's it's like yeah, it's like a bad driver. I can only make it turn right, so <laughs> right. we can <laughs> just you know you just you know let's just circle around. You know? Yeah, that was part of the stories that um, I guess the Bob Lazar stories that they were they would take these things for spins in the desert, which is you can as you do as you mm-hmm. do. Well, I mean, certainly I would yeah. I would want to. I'd want them to hand me the keys. You so uh, was it a piece of evidence for you that brought you closer to the idea that this might be interdimensional? Assuming there's a, a feeling like the phenomenon exists, yeah, based on your father's work, yeah. your own life and work, and the phenomenon exists. Or is it was it a piece of evidence, or was it simply the fact that the extraterrestrial option seems so unlikely um, in your mind? Yeah, I think it's more a process of elimination, and I'm not the first person to suggest interdimensional. Sure. My no, father, Jacques Vallée, yeah. many others, right? Absolutely. So mm-hmm. it, I think it that's to me, it seems like the most sensible. Right, it just kind of rings true. So it wasn't hard for me to go there, um, and also they're just aspects call them like psychic aspects of the phenomena that just seem to transcend nuts and bolts visitors from out of space. Um, to me, an interdimensional provenance makes a lot of sense because now it answers the two biggest questions for me. How do they know about us? 
because they're our dimension adjacent, to use L.A. real estate terminology. And maybe they are us in some way. Time distanced, uh, next dimension, alternate universe. So that goes a long way for me. Then you mentioned how they blink in and out. Well, if you have a craft that can go from one dimension to another, that seems consistent with that sort of paradigm. So for me, that just seemed to work a lot, but it just seemed to sit better with me than traversing a big universe either with biological beings or sentient AI bots and exposing yourself to the radiation and all the other things attended with that or going through a wormhole. If, if they can, another thing is if they can come all this way, why? They've got everything they need there. So that just makes interdimensional much more interesting to me. Yeah. Although I, I guess as I said, to me it always seemed disappointing because I, I want there to be something somewhere else. But, it doesn't doesn't rule that yeah. out. Oh, no. I think that yes. But I but I also think the you know, now we have like um various you know, physicists and mathematicians putting forward the idea that space-time, you know, they keep using space-time is doomed. That the you know, that we need to break out of the Einsteinian box. And That's this, Eric Weinstein. Yeah. And but yeah. also I think uh Donald Hoffman. Yep. Uh you know, is saying that uh, that space-time is not fundamental, it's emergent. And that dis- distance itself might not be a real thing. Yeah, and, and Eric, if, Eric Weinstein believes there may be multiple dimensions, not only of space but of time. Mm-hmm. Let that rattle around your head a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So in that case, if if distance is only an illusion, uh, a species far in advance of us may have figured that out and figured out how to exploit that, and may not only not not only be able to get to us very easily but might, in fact, be able to be everywhere at the same time. Yeah. So if you guys want, I can send you a, like a four-minute video of my dad being asked where UFOs come from. You can cut it in the show or provide a link to oh, it. Oh, sure. It's Good. really fun about him off the cuff just talking about where these things might come from, not as a scientist making a pronouncement, but just as an individual saying, well, here's what this. That's yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, the I think about is that if they are if – they're, if they're, uh, Interstellar travelers, and they're violating the, the you know the speed of light rule. Then they should go to jail. Yes, and they're automatically uh, extratemporal travelers, so they are time travelers because if they're doing that, um, there's also the idea, which to me ties into ancient alien stuff, is that they could have arrived half an hour ago, but they could have arrived at all points in history at the same time. So to Are you our just perception, trying to mess with me, Dave. <laughs> yeah. So that, to that's our hurting. perception, that's hurting. You out at this point. so to our perception, yeah, you can't outweird me. Even <laughs> if they more. just arrived a half hour ago, to us they would have been here throughout human history. And there's no way. To, there's no way to distinguish that possible reality from any other. I so. think it boils down to me to just self-interest. If you're like, there's very less interest if you're a quadrillion miles away. Why check us out? What's the what's the point? We're in a we're in a fairly remote area of uh, you know our I mean, we, galaxy. Why, why did Shackleton go to the South Pole? Uh, I know, but we're a lot further I mean, away than the South Pole. That's what he was asking himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like what the fuck after did I do? endurance. But I yeah. but south. I think if you're after everything went south, boom. <laughs> if yes. you're sharing space, if you're sharing, you know, if you're uh, to to the interdimensional question, if you're sharing a planet, or you're somehow yeah. there's there's more self interest in poking your head out, you know, yeah. what, is, what do you guys do? What's going on here? Yeah, what are they doing in universe 1AB, right? Yeah. I, yeah. It's, what's what's happening here? Do they have some, you mentioned psychic 
um, wh- what is what is what is that to you? Is that is that well, related think, to abduction well, stories? Well, sure. Or? So I, I think the movie Close Encounters portrayed that really well. So my father's first book on the topic of UFOs was called The UFO Experience, not the UFO sighting, because for many people who report uh, an encounter with a UFO or an alien, it's often not the sighting of a craft that makes the deepest impact on them. There's often they feel or they report communications before, during, and after that sighting. So in the movie Close Encounters, you've got you know this fascination with mashed potatoes looking like the Devil's Tower. And that's before there was any experience. Well, before asterisk, mm-hmm. in, re- mm-hmm. in reference to your earlier point, Dave. So, but that's so many reports have communications, telepathic communications, uh, distance by distance and over time that are so different and I think more interesting than seeing a craft exhibiting, you know, maneuvers that we don't know how they can do. Well, I think I can echo it because in mm-hmm. part that thing is what Jeremy Corbell and I saw out on a country road. Yeah, you told me about that last week. Yeah, and um, and as I said, the sighting itself was weird, and and you know, there's no way there's no way it could be anything other than what we saw. It was that clear and close. But to me, it is the the fact that it that the experience itself seemed to be being controlled by somebody other than. Jeremy and myself. Right. And in in that case, there's no abduction, at least that I know of in that case. Mm -hmm. But here you are talking about having seen something, but it's really not the sight of that craft that's the most important to you. It's how it Even when there's no other apparent elements to it. Yeah. It's the the influence it had over me emotionally and intellectually and continues to because still – I said the thing that's still remarkable to me is that I still feel no emotional attachment to having had that sighting. It just feels like something that's very just a practical bit of knowledge. And it also feels like a bit of knowledge I have to keep clinging to. Like there's always Mm. a sense that if I'm not careful, it'll drift away. Ah, fascinating. You know, which is, you know, that there's, you know, that, and again, because there's no emotional content to it, we tend to. And, and yet we tend to just, cling to our memories with emotional content. And yet you're describing content. it in raw emotional terms. Yeah, but without any emotion. <laughs> we'll sort it out. You know, um, but I mean, that's the. it's a very strange experience. Yeah, but, but I think that's a hallmark of the phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's saying something, but he's feeling different and then knowing that, but that's wrapped up and that's just a sighting yeah. of a craft in the sky. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. fascinating. Well, I, yeah. I, I mean, I've said, and I said in the last show that the um, my you know, my crossing over to, okay, I have to accept this as a re- as a reality of the world and then uh, therefore of my life somehow was a, a friend's abduction experience. So it wasn't something I saw. It wasn't something I experienced. It was my investment in this person as someone I trusted and just knew and could not, as you said, like unimpeachable people telling you things. For me, that was the, the crossover moment where mm-hmm. I was either forced to sort of say this person's crazy which it's which also is is as hard for me to believe as this other thing which is incredibly hard to believe but it was a a uh, vivid um very similar to s- stories like from communion and but from someone that to me was unimpeachable and and um and i think we've talked a little bit about that emotion uh, you know i was very young when i saw um it was more me watching my mother see something is what my memory is you know uh. it was her we were on our lawn 
farmland, big sky, very Pennsylvania. We were, and I just remember her saying, just what is that? What is that? What is that? What is that? And a crop circle appeared in, in a nearby farm the next day. Um, uh, and I, but I was too young to know what my experience was that related to that. But And did it become an ongoing conversation with you and your mom, though, over the years? No. It just, yeah, nope. that, which is another weird Ma, aspect like it, of it. I mean, we had lots of, as you know, like lots of activity in this area. I, I, I talk about it as like it was our mini skinwalker. It was just a very active area. There, we had ghost experience and this and that. But mm. no, we we didn't. It was it was bizarrely put aside as I think sometime we just side pocket the things that we're not, you know, we're not prepared to handle. Or mm-hmm. when life which, goes off the rails, you I think, think of it as a third person observer a little bit. Um, well, I think of it like like the the X Files approach to life. Every episode of the X Files had some other curtain to surreality pulled back, and yet it's back to set point for the next episode, mm-hmm. right? And so, my whole life, I've been presented with fantastical encounters of all kinds of things that would put several of them together. Just it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Shatter this complete reality. And yet I go and I teach finance at Pepperdine during the day. Yeah. Or I remember... A few weeks ago, I did DMT again, and um, it was particularly strong. I was out strong. of town. You just, I understand why you didn't invite me. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, and it was particularly strong, and I'm about halfway back, and I thought, there's no way I, I'm just going to return to normal life. And it, it was kind of like what you're saying about this experience. Just matter of fact, it wasn't like being trapped, like our friend Dean had mentioned. It wasn't like that at all. It's just like I'm fundamentally changed. I'm not really going to go back. And then 15 minutes later, I'm looking for at traffic on the 405. Mm-hmm. And I, I, there's so, some missing components to this story here that I find fascinating. That I, I, <laughs> yeah. you know, See, there's I'm, missing time yeah, everywhere yeah, you yeah. look. Some, we went but, from the 405. We did the DMT. We're now in the 405. And somewhere in there, like reality well, was cracking open. Yeah. I Here's need to the know. Thing we should go into is maybe because uh, you're talking about the, the notion of, of preferring an interdimensional explanation. Yeah. And I think like many people who start to uh, – and again – you leapfrogged it by, by never having a period when you weren't uh, accepting of the reality of the UFOs. Um, but people who go into this, once you, as we keep saying, once you cross the Rubicon, your mind gets opened up to a lot of other things mm-hmm. that you might not have wanted to look at before. For me, it was like abductions I didn't really want to look at. And it really mm-hmm. ignored until about five, six years ago. And when I finally went, well, if I'm really going to take this seriously, like, it's stupid to 
pretend yeah. abductions don't happen. Um, and uh, but people tend to start thinking in terms of consciousness and how does consciousness work? How do how does con- how do we really relate to the universe we think we live in anyway, right. except through our consciousness? And how much can we trust it? And I know you've become very interested in the nature of consciousness mm-hmm. and exploring it through things like DMT. That's right. And um, and maybe we can talk about that a bit. Sure. How you got Please, there? Please, yeah. as someone who's standing on the other side of the window, who you know, I yeah. I need I need to know. I want to live vicariously. Yes. Okay. All right. So, um, I may or may not have done a lot of psychedelic drugs in my long hair. Youth days. Guilty as charged. Right. Myself, mm-hmm. yes. And um, I was having lunch with a friend of mine, Nova Spivak, who is the grandson of the famed management consultant Peter Drucker, who and Nova crash-landed tardigrades on the moon, which is kind of a nice little feather in your cap. Um, and he asked me, hey, Paul, where did your dad think UFOs came from? I said, you know, it's a tough one, but he kind of leaned towards interdimensional. And Nova said, Dude, you need to read a book called Alien Information Theory. And I said, you had me at A. Alien <laughs> Information Theory? Sexiest book title ever? Holy crap. I'm in. Okay, I'll read it, but what's it about? And he said, it's about DMT. And I'd heard of DMT, but I didn't really know much about it. It's sort of like you know, DMT is the chemical compound. It's the most powerful psychedelic known. One of the variants is ayahuasca, which is much better known than DMT in general, where you have a six to eight hour ceremony, you may throw up, and it's sort of a cleansing, cathartic experience where you meet abuela, and you, it's a very emotional experience. DMT is the sort of the step up where many people feel transported to another realm. And then you have 5-MEO, which is the toad, which is where you just meet God. So, I, wow. That's interesting. I mean, I could actually do a psychedelic as part of research. <laughs> uh, you know, carry on my old man's legacy. That rocks. And then later that day, I met um, uh, my friend Curtis Lee Hansen, who I had not met before, who was introduced to me. So they said, hey, Paul, Paul could help you get your movie made. And he's talking. He says, blah, blah, blah. And I, I'm a facilitator for DMT. I said, what? And I'm in the same restaurant I was in with Nova before. And he's like, yeah, Something's I have some with me. I want to do some tonight. And I'm, like, I'm leaving on vacation for Canada tomorrow. I got, you know, 10 hours of stuff to do and five hours to do it, but I'll do it in a couple of weeks. So I did a couple of weeks later. And I read Rick Strassman's book, The Spirit Molecule. I read Alien Information Theory. And I was fascinated. And the first thing that struck me was looking at the reports compiled by Rick Strassman it, there were sort of echoes of the early days of the UFO phenomena. And I thought, that's really fascinating to me. Okay, mm. I'm going to do this. So um, I met with my friend again. Any and trepidation? No. No, okay. because I'd also sort of uh, gone through some emotional crisis and depression, and I thought, if I can change things around, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I was not concerned that way. And um, so I did it, and I invited a friend over. He's like, okay, cool. He's like, wow, you got some balls. So we did it at my house, and it's about 15 minutes, and I felt that sort of archetypal breakthrough to the other dimension, which is just uh, – imagine if you're in like a planetarium with a million monitors 
how much of that can you input? Mm-hmm. And then of that, you only remember like a millionth of a percentage. And that remaining kernel of a kernel is still the most transcendental experience we ever had. Um, and when I was there, I didn't see like the Terrence McKenna machine elves or insects or blue ladies, but I felt this, what seemed to be like a female presence. And I say that because it was more nurturing, mm. but any kind of like spectrum that I can think of like good, bad, male, female, doesn't do them justice. It's like an ant looks at a Chevrolet transmission. What can the, what spectrum do they put it on? So I feel transported there. I felt this intelligence and you know, after saying, hello, thank you for having me. You, know, you need to be polite with the interdimensionals. We all know that. Um, I said, excuse me, are you what we perceive to be aliens and UFOs? And I felt uh, sort of like million miles of neurons and synapses firing and an answer bubbled down. We can't explain in a way that you would understand. And it wasn't pat or condescending. And even then, I remember thinking, well, if DMT is related to UFOs, yeah, I'm probably not going to be able to understand that. Mm-hmm. And then whoosh, I'm back. Temporally, the whole experience takes in reality? That was about 15 minutes. 15 minutes. Yeah. Now- You feel like you're going 15 minutes? Or did you feel like you were going six months as sometimes you, one hears? I mean, I was, so, well, then I did it. Then my friend said, hey, you guys want to do it again? My other friend said, no. I said, fuck yeah. Did it again. <laughs> and this time it was more like I was like 45 minutes. And instead of being transported, I felt this cosmic presence come into me and like try to remove like emotional sludge. And at that point, they were playing a song called Devi Prayer, which is this haunting music for this experience. And apart from one time a couple weeks ago, it's what I always listen to when I do DMT. And I was living between the beats of the music, to your point about time, but also between grief and gratitude. Um, and, um, it was just amazing. And I, I, I said to my friend that, look, I wanted to do that sort of classic breakthrough again, but this time it came into me and I felt like it gave me what I needed, not what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And my friend said, exactly. That's how plant medicine works. And I've done it multiple times since. And I've, I've just found it to be, and I've done five MEO now as well. And I've, I've found it to just be qualitatively different than any other psychedelic for a variety of reasons, the intensity, but also the fact that when I do it, either directly spoken or felt is, welcome back, Paul. Let's resume where we left off last time. There's this continuity of intelligence. That's There's a, a, a state memory. Whereas I, if I do mushrooms or something else, like wow, okay, this is cool. I'm I'm connected to the oak tree. Mm-hmm. Is it a? I mean, and this is so reductionist and silly, but I mean, is it the green room where everything is gathering in your mind, or is it the? Are you going to where, perhaps these entities? Yeah. Are? So the first time, and I've had that kind of breakthrough several times. I feel like I'm at the center of the universe, and I'm watching the creation of the ongoing fabric of the universe being made. And it's less um, circular and fractal and more sort of straight angle. And it feels hyper real. It feels that is home. Um, And that here is just, you know, trappings upon trappings. And 
Um, I've had that sensation several times. I, I've also mentioned I've had this other one a few times where it comes into me and it's sort of emotional like ayahuasca. The last time I did DMT, it was very interesting. I was with a friend of mine and I'm smoking a pipe instead of a bong and nothing happened. I thought, oh, this is probably going to be weak and I'll just need to feign politeness. But she said, oh, no, the pipe's clogged. So the next thing I know, bam, I didn't go to that other realm. It came to me. Mm. And I felt similar to the other times, but this infinitely recursive series of geometric patterns. Like Joe Rogan called it geometric patterns built of love and understanding. And it's just like unfolding and unfolding. And to me, I felt like, well, this could be heaven, not because of unadulterated bliss so much, but of just never-ending, fascinating intellectual stimulation. Like, this is it. And there's this implacable presence of such majesty and grandeur that I, it just, I was transfixed. Which is amazing. I mean, like, feels yeah. wrong to even ask a question after that. But because mm-hmm. um, I know I've, well, you know, as you know, <laughs> I've had amazing. I've had my difficulties getting getting launched with DMT. That's right. Like I've tried it twice now, and both times, uh, and I think it was possibly. We have high hopes for you, kid. Yeah, I think it was interference, maybe from the Cymbalta I'd been on for years. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, definitely, I would, I, would love, I would love to have that experience. It, it, the, the, the only possible comparison um, was a LSD experience in college. Where your I wife chased you around again? Oh, my brother. She didn't take me around this time. <laughs> this was pre, you know, pre those days, but I was going through I was going through it, and it was not not to that extent. But um, my brother's like, tell me, tell me what's like, tell me what's going on. I just said I was like, in words, like I, in, <laughs> I, 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 I like I, how, what else can I? Um, yeah. The right. the idea of your brain manifesting this level of um, cosmic opera seems uh, hard to imagine. I mean, I the you know I think of lucid. We've talked about lucid dreaming a little bit. We've talked about yeah. the physicality right. of a space. Um, I. I had experiences as a teenager of very intense lucid dreams where it was just the the physical, the solid physical nature of the dream I was in uh, was, it gave away something that I was somewhere beyond uh. my, it, it, I couldn't understand, I just couldn't understand it. But do you imagine those are the s- same place? Do you imagine dreams and this experience are different? $64,000 question. So here's my take. Um, I think we have a tendency to silo experiences and to treat them as different. Ghosts, lucid dreams, mm-hmm. DMT, aliens. Whereas I suspect there may well be an underlying unifying reality that there's a consciousness link between these all, that they're all the same, and that either they temporally instantiate themselves in different ways for different reasons, or that we perceive them in different ways because of our backgrounds. So for me, given that idea that they may well be the same, that's why I felt and still feel that exploring DMT may be an end around to aliens mm-hmm. and lucid dreams and mm-hmm. ghosts and mm-hmm. what and what have you. And 
one of my interests now is, you know, my father developed Close Encounters. That's for sightings. But there's not really a good evidence framework for, or a good framework for evidence. So I'm now developing a classification system for evidence. And what I'd like to do is inculcate this in the various experiencer communities. Hmm. So if someone says, hey, I have fairly regular encounters um, in my dreams or with a ghost or DMT or aliens, great. Do you feel it's a super intelligent being? Yes. Okay. Instead of bringing back the random things that we have, miscellaneous alloys and star maps and a super personal message that your Aunt Bertha has the gout, or general things like, hey, knock off the nukes, no more kumbaya wouldn't kill you guys. I'd like to inculcate into the communities a protocol to be proactive to the extent that you could not control but influence the encounter to say, for those who wish to demonstrate the objective reality of these experiences, and that's not everybody, to come back with something that science would be interested in mm. and not view as proof, mm -hmm. but as compelling evidence. So, for example, I've made seven different categories technological. If you bring a flying saucer to a laboratory, that's good. And I have three levels of, of how compelling something is. If you bring a body, that's pretty good. And perhaps the gold standard that where you don't need to have something that dramatic is math. Mm -hmm. okay? If you can go there and have them factor a super hard prime number, wow. Okay, now that's the language that science speaks. That would be interesting. So famous scientists would lean into that and say, yeah, that's the right approach. Now maybe you have to videotape the person. Maybe they're looking on their iPhone. But the gold standard for that would be there are seven millennium unsolved math problems. And there's a $1 million prize for solving each of these. There's the Riemann hypothesis, P versus non-P. So to me, how cool would it be with the people that I talk to now, they say they have these encounters, to give that to them and come back and solve the Riemann hypothesis. Because now for somebody like Seth Shostak at SETI, that wouldn't prove aliens but that would prove that somebody here has solved something that humanity has not been able to do. Mm -hmm. You can't look that up on your phone and find that because it's not there. Chat GPT will not help you. I, at least I don't think. Maybe 5.0, 6.0. But that would be enough to make scientists lean into this. And back to my earlier point, I don't care what the government does. Because I grew up in a UFO slash scientific household, I understand scientists. I know how they speak. What I want to do is get evidence that they like so that experiences don't feel that goalposts are being moved and scientists don't feel like you're just bringing random stuff. It doesn't add up to a lot. But prorate or proactively curate experiences to have experiences go and bring back things that science is ready to hear. And that's how I think we can make meaningful progress on a variety of phenomena. I think it sounds fascinating. I think it's a great idea. Did you feel like that consciousness or that you said it was a recurring conversation. You went back to the same conversation. So I was hoping you wouldn't ask that. Okay. <laughs> because the second time I did it, I went back there. I'm there. I'm ready to push it further. And, well, as soon as I was starting to vocalize a question, I said to myself, dude, why are you bringing that cheap-ass shit here? <laughs> now, that's like one mm -hmm. of the most important questions 
for our species mm -hmm. and deeply resonant for my family. Mm -hmm. And I myself shot it down. Mm -hmm. And that was at least ostensibly the reason I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, dude, that's bullshit because of the majesty and splendor of that place. Mm -hmm. Right, you know. So I leave me alone. Yeah. Right. I tried. I'll I tried, man. I tried. Sometimes, sometimes the situation hey. feels no. makes sense, though. Yeah. Tough crowd here. Well, I can't. Hey, no. It's like if you meet Mick Jagger, you don't want to say, "Hey, sing satisfaction for me." I can't handle <laughs> the gummy, guys. Guys, guys. Yeah. I can't handle the gummy. So you know, no, no, yeah. no shame here. Nah. I think it's just such a. Um, I I think the idea of a recurring presence is well, and so also, interesting. You, you told me something, and I can't remember the details. That was really interesting. I, but it was you and a friend who experienced the same place. Oh, right. So the first time I did DMT, uh, I had read the literature and I had an experience consistent with the literature. Whether or not that means, that could mean that that place is real. Uh, real kind of is a strange word here. That yeah. place exists and they we're all going to it. Or it could mean that I'm somehow influenced by that and now I manifest that vision. But the first time I did it, I have invited my friend over who had never heard of it and he didn't do any reading. And so after we both come out of it, we debriefed and I said, Greg, tell me what you saw without having heard anything from anybody. And he described a remarkably similar experience hmm. to what I had to what's in a lot of the literature by Rick Strassman. And I found that very compelling. Mm -hmm. So that felt like it was an actual place that could be gone to. Yeah, it's just more credence to lean towards that this is an actual experience because it still could be that, look, it's a um, powerful chemical and it has a pretty similar reaction on everybody and it makes the same hallucination. That's possibly true. Mm -hmm. But it was interesting that it was so consistent without having him been primed. Are you lucid in both environments when that's going on or is it just departure? You just Do you take, you go away, you come back? I mean, in other words, are you able to exchange information or share information if you're if you're when you start coming out, you're sort of in both worlds. And I've felt like successive waves where I, I come out, I look around, I see people in the room with me and then I'm out again mm. and I'll hear my friend say, oh, no, 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 don't talk to him. He's 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 still gone. I felt that. And um, because I used to do a lot of bongs in my childhood, I'm pretty good at doing deep bong hits. So I tend to absorb a lot of the substance but when you're in that full trip you're completely un, unaware of everything here wow so that's why it's also different than like if you're doing acid or something like that you may not be a sparkling conversationalist but you're at least vaguely aware that yes. there's a physics of this room mm, yes. now i was doing it when i got called home my mom was asking me and she's looking at me like what's wrong with you and i'm thinking and I'm peaking on acid at this point. And I'm thinking, Mom, you better chill out because I'm the guy that's here to protect you from that swirling vortex that's open on the wall behind you. So, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of like the difference between AR and VR. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's, uh, yeah, whether it's overlaid on your reality that's right. or an entirely different reality. Yeah, which is a great way to look at it because VR, yeah. you put on the goggles. Well, now soon you won't have to put on the goggles anymore. But you, the analog creature, are transformed into the digital realm. Whereas AR, augmented reality, you have digital overlays present in the analog world. So now with the vape pen I have, that's more of the AR version of DMT. Where it's sort of a micro dosing of DMT kind of? Now I did level one and I now have a level two vape pen which I've not used yet, which is apparently four times stronger. So it'll be, and even with that level one, I could say this is DMT. And I was told, no, no, this is to help you 
manage daily life, not to go anywhere, keep your eyes open. And I'm just so like Pavlovian used to feel DMT, close eyes, mm -hmm. go, blast mm -hmm. off. Mm -hmm. And this is a more now interactive, which could be helpful for the research of the, I mean, I think that. It's all about mm. research for me. <laughs> I, I all about research. research yeah. is Taking one for the team. I'm, I'm yeah. liking, I just want the reports back. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Um, it, it's endlessly fascinating. And the, this last experience I had where this recursively just, and it came on so strong, so fast, and I was just there. No preamble, no transporting, just, and it, it wasn't like I went there. It was like it came to me, which was a real subtle but important difference in my sensation. Yeah, I definitely have to get there. <laughs> yeah. This is, oh, I recently did uh, ketamine therapy. Right, which is of course the most boring of all of the uh, hallucinogens, um, and, but but therapeutic, right? But very therapeutic, but yeah, and definitely had profound um, a profound effect on my you know perception of myself, and so I'm I'm you know, and I think I used to be. I remember when I was first went on antidepressants back in the '90s. I was really afraid to to, to mess with my brain because my I make my living off of it. And I thought, what if I, you know, what if I take these antidepressants and I can't write a joke anymore? Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. and but now I'm definitely in a mood where, <laughs> you know, as, as I as I have now reached 60, where I'm going, I'm willing to scramble my brain up and see what comes out of it now. I'm, yep. I'm willing to willing to get some different yep. different takes on it. And that even the ketamine, which is, again, not an exciting drug, um, but gave but, but gave me um, what I would just describe as a third person view of myself. You know, which is kind of kind of like a way of getting the effect of like 20 years of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy in in four sessions. You know, so I now I'm, I'm I really am very curious to explore all of these things even more so after that, after the ketamine. I think that's a, probably a really good foundation to try that. Um, you know, it's not a obviously DMT is not a toy. And certainly to any people watching or listening. Uh, this is not something to take lightly. Mm -hmm. But um, if you hadn't heard of it before, if you had, there's a lot of interesting information online that you can look at to either decide, hey, I don't want to try this or it might be of interest to you. But um, it's one of the most fascinating things. And it's in our pineal gland. It's cursing through the natural kingdom, which I think one of the, is one of the reasons mm -hmm. it's so fast. I think it's already has like that privileged access. Right. But it's produced and, by almost every living thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And why? You know, and... I've heard one theory that it's in us because our brain will release measured amounts during times of crisis to help cope. Hmm. So that's an interesting thing. So I remember the first time I took it, my friend said, okay, you're going to try to do three bong hits if you can stick around. I'm like, dude, I know from bongs. <laughs> um, and he said, you're going to do that first bong hit and you're going to feel like your your weight is half and you're seeing all these kaleidoscopic things. I'm like, after one hit on a bong, I, come on, dude, don't be so melodramatic. I do that one hit, I'm like, dude, I'm fucking floating, and I'm yeah. seeing everything. <laughs> and it's just, I think it's because it's in the brain, so it, it's not just that it's this new substance, but it's like activating, harmonizing with something's already there. Like reuniting with something almost, yeah. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's interesting. You know Jimmy Church, right? Uh, no, I don't. <clears throat> He's a radio host. Yeah. He has a program I've called Face Black. Yeah. Um, so I've done a show a bunch of times. I'm, I'm a friend of his now, and... Um, uh, he asked me early, it's like two minute or two hour spot, and he asked me early on something I let into that, and then he's just like, whoa, uh, okay, let's go. <laughs> mm -hmm. Why aren't, well, I know, I was microdosing uh, psilocybin all the way through making the, the Kids in the Hole reboot. 
and I don't think I would have gotten through it without it. <laughs> did you, when you were doing it, did you feel anything or just you just noticed that you felt better? No, just noticed <clears throat> I felt better. I was felt clearer headed, uh, more creative, uh, less uh, irritated by, by other people, which if you know the other kids in the hall is a minor miracle. Um, <laughs> Chrissy can testify. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I found I didn't I didn't want to kill them, uh, and I was and I was able to get I was getting rewrites done really fast. I was like so fast that the, like the other guys were saying, could you, "Well, could you rewrite this?" And just well, you're at it, and just was like the most productive I've been in years. So uh, you you said it almost like you're not microdosing now. I'm not because <clears throat> uh, I moved to New York and I can't find. I can't find anything oh, um, in New York. I've, 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 I've got a guy. I got oh, a, yeah? I oh, got cool. For that various w- tinctures and whatnot. That would be good, yeah. And also DMT microdosing. Oh, I'd like and to. Not, not yeah. the vape pen, but like a tincture. Yeah? Oh, cool. But is that life functioning? Like you can go down the street and you can get the coffee and go to the – on that? Yeah. Okay. Well, definitely I know with psilocybin it was – yeah, no no high at all. No yeah, I mean the, the, the – I'm not an expert on microdosing, but what I understand, having done it somewhat and talked to people, is that – you're not supposed to feel a lot when it happens. Like a lot of people that microdose acid too, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah. like venture capitalists. And so you're not supposed to like directly feel the results of it. You're just supposed to like indirectly feel like more focus and stuff like that. Right. It's almost like um, uh, modafinil. Modafinil is a um, drug developed, I think, primarily for like narcoleptics. So I've done it. It's, it's a powerful nootropic, and basically it doesn't. It's not like an amphetamine, but it just makes you super focused, kind of mm-hmm. like you're, I think yeah. some of the microdose. And it's just you're just like I'm good to go, and you just like stay on that one track for a while. Yeah. Is it a Ritalin related type <clears throat> of thing? Is it an Adderall? Uh, uh, um, I think some people with Adderall might take that. It's a different, or some people who take Adderall might benefit from mm-hmm. modafinil. But they're a different. But it's different drug. Okay. Yeah. And I've done that a fair amount. Because I know I have not been um, diagnosed, but it's almost definite I'm ADHD. Um, but and, and ADHD wannabe. Yeah. ADHD curious. <laughs> yeah. Learning. And definitely, you identify as ADHD. Yeah, yes. And definitely the uh, microdosing uh, mushrooms. Uh, was a great uh, help in that. I think yeah. I, I liken it to like I'm not. So here's a story I heard. Um, I was talking with my siblings. We're doing like a family Zoom call. This is like a year ago, and there we brought up on Google Maps a house that they lived in before I was born. Um, and my brother Scott said, "Oh, that's the Maharishi's room." And I said, "Yeah, well, run that by me again. What do you mean?" He said, "Well, that's where the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi stayed with us for a week right before he met the Beatles." I'm like, yeah, I didn't know about that. Tell me about that. <laughs> and he said, yeah, he somehow he knew dad. He stayed with us, and we all got our own mantras. And I thought, that's super cool. Now, I've cool. never really been successful, like, sitting nam myoho renge kyo or mantra, just sitting there. But I've always found that, like, if I'm digging in the backyard or lifting weights or hiking, doing something physically simple, maybe, maybe even strenuous, that frees up. Mm-hmm whatever executive functions I have to then get past like the monkey mind. Mm-hmm. So I'm like an active meditator. And I think that may be the same way like this microdosing. It just sort of occupies that limbic system or whatever such that you're like, okay, I don't have to worry about these things. 
and just goes. Well, I've heard that about surfing, that that the amount of uh, concentration that's necessary and the physical concentration uh, awareness that goes into surfing uh, puts the brain into a deep meditative state. You know, that reminds me of what they said about like the uh, traditional Japanese archers. They're on horseback. So they have to time the release of the arrow with the gallop of the horse, but also their own heartbeat. Mm-hmm. So think of the amount of focus that goes into that. Yeah, that's why I was I was I washed out of the uh, Japanese archery Did core. You? Yeah, Zanen doesn't Nen. have. Yeah. You had, and you had a talent. Yeah, that's a, that's really it's a disappointment. I, I speaking of like TM and meditation. I mean, I think that's my. I think I experienced when I started to do it. Um, it felt like it was releasing previous hallucinogens in my brain because I that from prior from prior experiences from, oh, and, or, and or I had like been, naturally occurring or no well it had been mm-hmm. it had been both I think because I had early experiences that were um, fundamental overwhelming um, confronted with a sort of conscious power that was and I was not seasoned I was just sort of trying to start experimenting with it but it had but had enough to be like this Jesus I'm on to something and even in the meditation retreated it was funny you mentioned before you were like fuck it I'm not going to do this you know I'm just going to be in this moment I had a little bit of a whoa like whoa this is a little more than I signed on for and regretted it because actually haven't had uh, and I rely on meditation a lot. I wish I did it as consistently as I probably should, but I find it such a creative resource and all that and also a, a way to kind of manage my own paranoia that, you know, surfaces with drugs. You know, I can sort of have it exclusive of that, but still an experience of departure. But um, so I had that one where I was like, I felt like I was connecting with something vast and and powerful and rolling and approaching and even, you know, but then I was doing it consistently and was at, and was at work and found that kind of almost a speedy coherence, you know, where suddenly things were operating on, but then <laughs> things were actually beginning to um, get a little traily, which I hadn't, <laughs> which had been a long time since I had dealt, you know, it'd been 20 years since I'd been dealing with anything, you know, that was, um, visually starting to kind of where I, I like called Christine. I'm like, I'm, am I tripping right now? Like, I, I think mm-hmm. I am. If you have, if you have to ask, then get, probably you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was something <clears throat> fundamental was going on and I'm like, but we were warned actually by our, by the person that was kind of our guy and gave us our mantras, whatever that you can, uh, that it can, it can, it can kind of instigate old, I like that. You're kind of like a squirrel storing away nuts for the psychedelic winter. <laughs> it was. It was sort of like, you know, right. again, yeah. boom, boom, boom. It, yeah. it was a flashback for free. I think George Carlin had a joke about that or something, you know, was was talking about flashbacks. I don't complain about flashbacks. Oh, it's yeah. like free drugs, you know. <laughs> right. it's, yeah. it's, it's here. Um, yeah. But I did want to I did I did want to talk about VR. Your work in VR. You mentioned you the it worked on Avatar. Um, I know there's there's sort of so many new kind of filmmaking techniques using VR. Yeah. Obviously, um, the sound that they use for Mandalorian is, and and now a lot of different things is a is I guess one say an AR type of VR experience. I mean, I'm and I'm completely throwing that out there. I don't know, but that's a 
the volume stage where you're completely surrounded. Oh, and the, the actual. St- oh, yeah, the LED screen. <coughs> yeah, you're completely yeah. surrounded. Yeah. And then, but then, in terms of creating that, I know there is sort of the helmet use. I'm just curious, like, where's that going right now? Because I know from you know being in an entertainment, and whatever, and people going like, we, we want stories for VR. We want uh, from the writer perspective, like, come up with something. But we've got these limitations, and I just it feels like it's all, like kind of almost there the last few years, but then. Okay, well, they can't quite, you know, from your perspective, A, what, what's your sort of sense of that world right now? Where is it going? And, and um, you know, what can we kind of potentially look forward to in terms of storytelling with that? Um, so let me go in reverse order. So sure. storytelling is challenging with something like VR because with VR, typically you have agency. Right? You have control over the experience. So that's not classically a story. That's more of an uh, interactive experience, whether or not it has gamified options. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people have struggled trying to put stories into VR because that's not, you know, stories are like, hey, uh, last night I saw this, this, and this, and that. It's me telling that story. Um, now, so I got into VR, like you said, I, I worked on Avatar, and even before that, I was with a company called Giant Studios, which is like the leading motion capture company in the world, in 2001, and we were working on Lord of the Rings. And it was during Lord of the Rings that we came up with what we call the virtual camera and the virtual production pipeline. So many people are familiar with motion capture. You have an actor with black spandex, which is always flattering, and some kind of dots, some kind of balls. Um, There are markerless motion capture, but especially back in the day, you had markers. And they walk around, and there are a lot of cameras in the ceiling and on stanchions hanging down. And they will pick up in the, mo- in the mocap volume the movements of these balls, which correspond to joints. And it's very low data transfer because you're not picking up images, you're not picking up lighting, it's mm-hmm. just these dots. The secret sauce is in translating or retargeting or solving the data, the motion capture data from these balls moving around into the joints of a different creature. In the case of Avatar, it's a Navi that's nine feet tall. You can't just like say, oh, there's more distance between the wrist and the elbow, so we'll lengthen them, because now you have to have biomechanical accuracy. So like Jar Jar Binks from one of the Star Wars movies is a really bad animation. It's very clunky and blatantly racist. (laughs) Um, But to have that new character be believable and not distracting you have to understand the biomechanics of that targeted character. So you have these people walking around, and there's a lot of differences. I don't want to dwell too much on the virtual production, but there's a lot of differences with traditional filming. You capture this data, and you can do, and you can have, if you've made the, the assets, the uh, character, the skeleton, uh, and some props perhaps in advance, real time, when I'm waving my arm, you can see my Navi arm or my Gollum arm hmm. waving in the monitor. Now, one of the interesting things about this kind of production is that there are no cameras. I mean, there's a hundred cameras on the ceiling, but there's no one fixed camera. So, you know, in traditional filming, let's say we're doing a, a, a three camera shot or a four camera shot. If something happens out of range, for all intents and purposes, it doesn't, doesn't exist. But we capture everything. So that means you separate camera angles from acting. So you can come back and change the camera angles after the fact. Yeah, that's crazy. So you, then you have what was used to be a, a thin monitor, now it's like an iPad, 
And that itself has markers. And so that is not a camera. That's a display device. But because it has markers, it's telling the computer what is the active camera angle. And so it looks, to all intents and purposes, like a camera. So we call that the virtual camera. You're walking through this landscape. There's a whole bunch of other things that are fascinating about that. But that's the virtual camera pipeline. And that's essentially using virtual reality, not in the consumption of the content, because it's not a VR movie, but in the production. Mm -hmm. Affording the creatives a far more immersive experience with that world than just seeing it on a computer monitor after the day, because they're essentially walking through there. And is that the facility mm -hmm. that someone like James Cameron has? Is like he can just work. He's got his whole yeah. So world we, we did that for Lord work. of the Rings, for Planet of the Apes, Hobbit, Avatar. Now all five avatars, um, Tintin, Real Steel, Warcraft, lots of movies and games. So I was already sort of used to that volumetric, mm -hmm. 3D approach. Then after Avatar, we sold the company to James Cameron, and I sort of jointed off into let's say pure VR virtual reality. So I was already sort of used to that idea. And my brother's done visual effects for a long time as well. And I found it fascinating. And um, I showed, I, I was on Richard Branson's island. And what do you give the billionaire who has have, have everything? You give him himself. So I captured a little VR thing on my phone. And I later showed him himself in VR. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I've showed thousands of people VR for the first time on their phone, created by and displayed on a phone. And even though it's not great graphics, it's immediately compelling. Uh, and I can capture people and show them themselves in VR. Um, and it, it's almost like a ketamine experience where you have that sort of distance looking at yourself. So I became less interested in VR for entertainment and more for other applications like medical, for example. So I worked with USC to incorporate virtual reality into their stroke recovery technology. So I, and I can quickly punch above my weight here because I'm a French major, but my understanding is, at least in this kind of stroke, the muscles in your left arm, even though paralyzed, are intact. What's happened, at least in this kind of stroke, is that there's an electrical disturbance because right. we're all like electrical circuits. And for some reason, the sensory nerve impulses are not coming from your hand and your arm to your brain. So the motor cortex in your brain says, wait a second, I don't know where that arm is, what it's doing, if it's hot or cold or feeling pain. I'm not going to tell it to do anything because I don't know what's going on. Now, when you take a painkiller, that also stops the reception of sensory nerve impulses by your brain. So you, you still have pain in your hand. Your right. brain just doesn't register it. So the research we did, USC had already come up with the technology to have an EEG on your head and an EMG to detect if the motor cortex has sent muscle um, motor cortex nerve impulses to the arm. We then made, well, we applied the goggles and created a virtual reality world with a, an award-winning sound designer who had a neuroscience background, such that you have this sort of beneficial ambient environment and background noises. And the goal then is to move your virtual arm. Your real arm is paralyzed. It won't move. But to, with by dint of the EEG picking up signals from your motor cortex, faint, that get down to the arm, not enough to move the arm, but for it to be registered on the EMG, your virtual arm will then move over to the target position, which is over here. And so we created a sound to me immediately intuitive to say to showcase that you're going the right direction. So it's like this. 
And when it gets to the target position, I call it phase lock, and there's this kind of whoosh noise, and then a little bird lands on your on the back mm-hmm. of your hand. So the brain is getting real-time feedback. And what happens is, by dint of repetition, the brain says, I'm not hearing from the sensory nerve boys, but I'm getting something, and I'm going to lean into this. Mm-hmm. So it starts, the motor cortex starts sending out successively stronger motor nerve impulses. And after a while, those are enough in and of themselves to reboot the heretofore dormant sensory nerve system and function is restored. No scalpel, no drugs. That's great. But by tapping into the latent, kind of like your psychedelic squirrel nuts, (laughs) neuroplasticity Mm -hmm. of the brain to heal itself. Mm Mm-hmm. That is a That's very, amazing. very and, cool and, application. And how far is impl- implementation of that gone? Well, there's many many types of sort of this uh, biofeedback that are being used now for Parkinson's, strokes. Um, uh, a friend of mine uh, named Walter Greenleaf, who's one of the big OGs of virtuality, 25 years or so or more, at Stanford all that time. Um, and he uses virtual reality to combat anticipatory anxiety. Which, if you're human, you have. Yeah. So one great example of that is children going to the hospital for some ghastly medical procedure. Just imagine if they're old enough to have an idea of what's going to happen. So he walks them through that, the whole thing, so they can sort of get acculturated to it and sort of de-boogeyman it. Hmm. But he's very smart, and he started it off not here you are in the operating theater he starts it in the car of the parking lot because that's where your anxiety might be the most because that's where you have the most unknown. Mm-hmm. So they're, where, yeah. they're going through this. So they're at home they're and they, they've recorded. Pre-living the yeah, event. Right. That's right. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. No. Or like you're afraid of snakes. Well, you get a little bit, a little bit closer, a little bit closer. Or um, I worked with the USC ICT, Institute of Creative Technology. They help veterans with post-traumatic stress. And the, the director of that institute, a former Marine, was quick to point out it's not PTSD. Post-traumatic stress from combat is not a disorder. It's completely normal. Yeah. He does not like that nomenclature. Mm-hmm. So they used VR in a very interesting way. You have this avatar, obviously not real, and the graphics aren't anything to write home about, but it's prompting you, and this is before you know, chat GPT, prompting you to talk about your experience. And what some of the servicemen felt was less threatened because this is not a human from them who's going to judge them. Mm-hmm. And it helped them sort of walk through mm-hmm. these experiences. So no visuals apart from this little goofy little robot avatar. And just that that ability to sort of distance themselves and sort of lean into it at their own comfort and their own pace was enough to really be cathartic for them. Do you think there's any application for Alzheimer's at some point? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, They're I, starting to realize that the sort of classical notion of amyloid plaque may not be the exact answer. I was wondering, right? It's That's the supposedly, you know, the yeah. gathering and the well, blocking of these, you know. Well, yeah. they've, I know they've found, like, nuns living in a very sort of close community, but they who have stay very intellectually active with whether it's crossword puzzles or other things uh, that they found post-mortem looked at their brains and found them just full of plaques and said, by all accounts, this woman should have had no concept of where she was, who she knew, 
or anything. And I know that when but they ask them when they're alive, they said it's none of your business. Yeah, and they were completely lucid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know that what that reminds me of. They've done studies on backs. I used to have really crippling lower back pain, um, and they would do they would do MRIs, and uh, like a hundred patients, they do MRIs and find like herniated discs in thirty of them. Well, twenty of them didn't have any pain, and then the ones that did have pain had perfectly normal discs. So it's the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Also, I, I've read that cholesterol may not be bad. Oh, I hope not. Right? <laughs> I'm here to help you. <laughs> then I'm in uh, great debt. Let's go I'm to In-N-Out, yeah. right? Great that yeah. it may actually be a protective mechanism for something else. So here's something else I heard that's interesting, a little bit off topic, but it's, it's fascinating. There's a guy who wrote a book called uh, Food is Your Best Medicine. And he made the point that a lot of people are prescribed medication for high blood pressure. But he said, you've got to be careful because here's one, re- here's one instance in which that's a phenomenally bad idea. Let's say you have impaired kidney function. Okay, your body must have blood of a certain purity level. If it doesn't, things are going to shut down. So if your kidneys are not working that well, it needs to increase the throughput to get more blood through there faster to have enough pure blood. And that will increase your blood pressure. Now, it's not great, but the underlying cause is impaired kidney function. So if you take drugs to artificially depress the blood yeah. pressure, you're working against the body's innate curing mechanisms. Yeah, something is being serviced by that. Right, blood. Yeah. so mm-hmm. we're coming to more complex understandings about cholesterol and amyloid plaque, et cetera. But for a variety of neuro issues related to the brain, virtual reality and other types of non-invasive feedback, of which are many, are proving to be more and more effective. Yeah. It seems like there's a little overlap between virtual reality and consciousness curiosity in the way you're using it. Is that, is that, does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I'll give you another example. So I, I like drones. I'm a nerd. I own it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I fly a drone, I feel like a chunk of my consciousness of my center of gravity has gone with that drone. It's more than just a remote control plane. Mm-hmm. Even if just looking through the camera that I feel a little bit transported with that, a little bit of malleability or divisibility of my consciousness. There's an experiment done a while ago um, where they, it was an early VR experiment where they had the goggles on and they were attempting with the EG to move a spider's body with six legs. And they were looking for something else, but what they found was how fast, how surprisingly fast the human volunteers were able to efficiently move the spider. Which suggests, you know, I believe we've evolved through many forms. Mm -hmm. We may have memory of these different forms or the brain just may have this onboard dynamic ram that's not completely wed to this current bipedal form. That there may be an innate consciousness that rides above or below that. Mm-hmm. Like we have a limbic system in our brains, right? Which is sort of the lizard part. But I think it's fascinating that the brain can so quickly adapt. Say, okay, dude, I'm a spider. Yeah. yeah. And would that be like connected to mirror neurons, do you think? That which I don't that, know. That, that notion that, that I think might be the seat of, of empathy which is that there are neurons in our brain that fire when we observe other people doing things, 
which is why we enjoy watching sports and why our heart will race when we're watching sports. That's oh, why, that's cool. It's why porn works um, because the mirror neurons fire and you you don't you aren't just observing. Your brain is participating and believing that it's that it is partaking in the activity. Oh, so that gets like back to your lucid dreams. You know, there's a as you guys know, I'm sure there's a, a shutoff mechanism, and I don't know the term for it, so that you don't physically act out your dreams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's yeah, got to be sleep related paralysis to that. thing. Yeah, but yeah, just that notion that uh, you know, it's why we like movies. Why we'll we'll cry when something sad happens to someone in a movie is that our mer- I don't cry in movies. Yeah, well, you you you're TV pre- shows. You're, yeah. Oh yeah, TV commercial, shows at home, mostly commercials. By myself, yeah. sobbing, <laughs> yeah, inconsolably, yeah. But uh, that yeah, that the mirror neurons fire, and we experience we experience other people's actions as though they're our own. Which, uh, like I know I'm very susceptible. I know when I'm watching when there's a fight scene in a movie, my arms are, my arms are going. You know, so like if I reach out and start making it rain with all the twenties in my wallet, you might do the same. Um, no, 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 because my cheapness really overrides everything. <laughs> okay, that, that, yeah. mirror, that mirror is cloudy. <laughs> yeah, but it's yeah, but the, you just <clears throat> that that thing that you ex, you in in a real way experience things you observe, as though the, as though you're participating. Which again, like why why it's why when we're watching sports, like when you're watching a team that you're really invested in. You can get so emotional about it and get so wrapped yeah. up in those moments. There's also I thought it was just being from Philadelphia, but maybe mm-hmm. it was, sorry about that. Yeah. Oh, hey, hey, oh. Hey, we had some <laughs> Canada attacks. It's okay. We yeah, I, I spent a couple years in Philadelphia. I loved it. Um, it's interesting. They did a little bit of research to show hardcore sports fans when they talk about their team having lost. They'll say, oh, the bums, they couldn't do anything. When the team won, like, we were really good. <laughs> yeah, There's this yeah, conflation of ego with that. Yeah. Hey, now. Come also, on. but mm. there have been, I've seen some experiments where, like, inmates in a prison just imagined working out instead of actually working out and got some therapeutic benefits from that. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's, I'm going to try that approach. It sounds like, <laughs> a, it sounds like somewhat less. Brutal approach. Yeah, talk about multitasking. It's, You're driving on the highway. Yeah. I'm benching come, come 550, down. baby. I'm working out. I have to say it's the only approach I have tried so yeah. far. Well, <laughs> so stick with it. You some look point great. I'll try the actually working you out. Look great. So it's like micro lifting. Yeah, I'm think. Yeah, I think about <laughs> it all the time. <laughs> I've, I've taken out. Uh, I've taken out memberships. Thought about Still going. Don't have apps. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. It's in there somewhere, just mentally. One thing I was so speaking of micro lifting, whatever. You what, what, reverse aging? What? Is this? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not at liberty to discuss that. Yes, you you are. You're here. We can't let you out until you tell us the oh, secrets. Well, okay. Um, yeah. So I I may have uh, the world record as documented in a uh, peer-reviewed medical journal and featured in a documentary. The world record for reversing my age. And what are the measurements? How do you like me now? I mean, yeah. no, you look great. I mean, this, I would um, not argue with it, but yeah. I, you know, I'm... Is this on that scale, the methylation scale? Is that what it's yeah, called? Methylation the, uh, the, uh, yeah, methylation clock. Yeah, methylation epigenetic clock. So um, I was giving a, uh, a talk at a conference about five, six years ago, and there was a guy named Greg Fay talking about a research project he was going to do, and he was looking for volunteers, where for the first time in history... The FDA had proved a medical trial not to combat this or that disease, but to fight aging as a suite of diseases. And it was also approved by the IRB, the Institutional Review Board, as being conducted on the aegis <coughs> of the Stanford Neuroscience Institute. So uh, I thought, well, if you get some pedigrees involved, I'll be interested. So um, and he said the 
goal of the experiment of the trial, the year-long trial, is to regrow the thymus gland. Thymus gland is behind your breastplate. It's not the thyroid, which I thought it was. And it's what creates T cells. T cells are white blood cells, which is your immune system. T cells T cell stands for thymus-enabled cells. So now I was already predisposed to extreme life extension. I'm friends with Aubrey de Grey and other people in the field, and Aubrey de Grey was actually there. And um, so it doesn't take me much to do psychedelics or to try to live longer. So um, I'm, and he's sort of describing the qualifications and broad strokes for volunteers. You have to be healthy, you have to be between these ages, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm thinking, wow, and it's free. It's a year-long program. And he laid out such a solid research foundation for this. And he's, he is, in fact, one of the smartest medical minds in the world. He's the leading cryobiologist as well. Hmm. So if you have your body, what they call frozen at Alcor to come back, it's actually vitrification. That's his technology. If they're going to transport um, a heart around the world, they use this technology as well. So I was so impressed. I'm thinking, okay, after he's done, I'm going to bum rush the stage. I'm going to hit that guy in the, in the Achilles. I'm going to hit that guy in the throat. But even at this conference, which is about um, transhumanism issues in general, there wasn't that much bad rush. I get to the stage and I tell him, I know you're going to have to do a bunch of tests on me and screening, but I guarantee you I will be in this trial. And I did. I got in the trial. And not only was it successful at regrowing and refunctioning the thymus, because the thymus shrinks. Once you turn 20, your thymus shrinks, everybody, man and woman alike, to the tune of 3% per year. They call hmm. it involuting. So as you get older, your thymus, which is your immune system, gets weaker and weaker. So it's widely acknowledged in the life extension community that if you want to create meaningfully longer life, century, two centuries, et cetera, job one is immune system. It doesn't matter if you do stem cells and telomeres and You just need to fight NAD. everything off. You need to be if able If you to... die from a cold, mm -hmm. you're dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we did the trial for the year, lots of tests. We did the kickoff at the Stanford Neuroscience Institute. I thought this is such a great adventure. I dubbed us the thymonauts. And not only did the trial prove successful at regrowing the thymus, but it showed success with overall markers of aging by the methylation and epigenetic clocks. And I can get into more detail about that. Um, such that that one trial, that year-long trial, was published in Aging Cell Magazine as the first documented time of actual age reversal. And of that trial, I had the best results. My brother Joel had the second best results. So you got him on mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Nicely done. Yeah, yeah. And so... Is it, uh, and therapeutically, what is this, are you... Strong you know, like bull. Dosed, dosed, mm -hmm. no, no, but dosed with the vitamins, dietary... Oh, okay, so yeah. it's sort of a cocktail... The primary agent is human growth hormone that I injected in my belly four times a week for a year. Now, after that was done, we decided, let's do another run of it. So I did another 15 months. And at this point, I had joined the company as CFO, did another 15 months, and it then showed my age had been reversed uh, you know, on your innards by 11 years. And so now it's featured in, I'm, I'm the only person I believe to be on the history show called The Unexplained, hosted by William Shatner, twice for two completely different yeah. topics, UFOs that and gotta be right. wow. age That's, reversal. But you don't actually have to talk to William Shatner. <laughs> I did not talk to William Shatner. Okay. Who knew my father? Who's yes. a friend of my father? Um, so, and my brother did it again. He had very good results. So just absolutely thrilled 
Wow. Fly this. And the company's called interveneimmune.com. I'm not really shilling it because it's hard for us to input well, people because it's so much work. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I've, we, been, I've been sort of doing the supplements rec- that David Sinclair yeah. recommended so, in his, his book. Right. So David Sinclair was on your friend Joe Rogan's podcast talking for 15 minutes about our program. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Ah. All right. I'm down. I'm ready. So, yeah. So what do you think about the stuff he's doing? Is it overlap a lot with? It's uh, complementary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, a lot, never done, there's a lot of roads to living. Because I've never done human growth hormone, never taken that. Yeah, I mean, I did a lot of research on it. It's a fascinating substance. Um, I mean, I do have a little baby hand growing out of my back every now and then, but that's as, useful. As you do, yeah, 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 yeah right. Yeah, um, that's that's our keys. Yeah, whatever. Right. You know, yeah. yeah, bus fare. <laughs> you know, um, and it's a great. You know, if my whole CFO gig doesn't work, I can go on the carny circuit mm-hmm. um, again. And yeah. and and be able to rain healthy even if even if we aren't ex- like people have the m- misapprehension that lifespan has increased since the middle ages uh, people say well people used to only live to be 40 and now they live to be 80 this no people have always had a fixed life an an outside lifespan of about 110 years and that's existed for as long as people have been around um, what's what's changed is just the average lifespan how many people don't die from diseases or get that's in, right. are getting beaten to death? That's a, that's a or, good distinction. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we're just increasing the number of people that live close to the maximum human lifespan of the, about the 110 current years. Maximum. Yeah, right. And that's which a good, we can increase. That's a good distinction. And had not everybody been working over these past centuries to fight off these diseases or prevent better germ conditions, we wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But no, so absolutely. People yeah, say, right. "Is this is this greedy on your part to do this? It's against God." Well, don't we owe it to our grandchildren to extend their lifespans like ours were extended? What will be their antibiotics? Yes. What will and, be yeah, their? I mean, right. if, and no one's no one said, you know, you know, it, living to fifty put too much of a strain on society. Yeah, right. That isn't an right. argument that anyone's making. Yeah, you know, so why why should we not live to a hundred on average? And, uh, and why hundred and fifty is a I'll, I'll take it one step. Why should we die? I, I don't want to die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm determined to do what I can. So, like, people ask me, oh, you're going to do this drug cocktail? It's kind of risky. Well, look, I want to live forever. Um, and so if I don't, if I do what everyone else has always done, probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. If it does, there's gonna it's going to anger the pitchfork-wielding villagers. Yeah, I think for me it's a quality, right, a quality of life, as we talk. I mean, as you mentioned, I mean, because it's uh, – we – you know, I went through with my father and Alzheimer's and just the where you're sitting, you're looking and you're saying, what, what is this? This is not life as I'm experiencing That's it. Right. But this That's is right. not, mm-hmm. this is not, and this is a living, like things are, things are pumping and oxygen's continuing to be moved through areas. And we were, you know, kind of would fix them up through surgeries and things. Yeah. And he, he, <laughs> he's, this is the darkest humor, but was the, the, the synthesis of the disease was, we went to the doctor, got a test, and the doctor says, you know, to my dad, you know, like, well, I'm sorry, you have cancer. And it's in the kidney, and we're going to, you know, we're trying to get it. And my dad was, you know, he was just locked in and, you know, and um, got out of there. And we're in the, lo- you know, the waiting room. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, you know, I check in. And, Dad, how you, how you feeling about this? And he went, about what? 
you know, and he just had no idea. Well, I mean, I mean, just been diagnosed, and I'm like, this is right. Just I mean, that's like fun. one time when Alzheimer's might be in some. Yeah, way. I know. It was just a. It's yeah. just the reality. Little, you don't want to get. But back I think to it's def- Yeah, definitely. Yeah, life extension isn't. Yeah, isn't about just extending life. No, and, and it's, it's not. It's not. Life. It's not taking you at 90 and giving you 30 more years. Yeah, because that. that's what it's just yeah. not letting you get to a biological 90. Yeah, you know, it's also yes. like the George Burns was famous for wanting to live to be 100. And some woman comes up to him at a party and says, but Mr. Burns, who really wants to live to be 100? Someone who's 99. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, there were a lot of ways to increase the life of certain parts of his body. But there was no Not sort of, overall. Yeah, organ- there was yeah. no overall kind of quality so, of life su- sustaining. Right. So what are, with the thymus, the goal was to basically take it back to like an 18-year-old, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. strong like bull thymus. Doesn't mean you can't get sick or get COVID. 18-year-olds get sick, but you have a you know optimum functioning thymus. And then the goal is now to see, okay, once we get it back to that state, will it shrink right away if you stop taking treatment? Or will it go back to that traditional 3% hmm. involution rate? Mm-hmm. And then once we figure that out, okay, now once you're 30, can you take very small maintenance doses to not let it ever shrink in the first place because that's a lot easier than regrowing mm. it. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And this is, again, in service of increasing healthy lifespan. Right. Right? I'm down with that. Mm-hmm. I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I want, I'm too curious to want to, to, want to die anytime soon because yeah. I think there's got to be something more interesting about to happen. I always feel that way. I think all of this yeah. has been quite fascinating and mm. proves there's lots of interesting things about this <laughs> yeah. world that are worth, worthy yeah. of exploration. And, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. once we it too soon. And I guess we should just, I guess on that note, maybe just say thanks. Thanks for coming in and talking fantastic. to us about all of this. So interesting. Pleasure. Really appreciate mm-hmm. it. I hope we can, you know, do it again. And now and now we'll pause and start I part done two. It with, <laughs> <laughs> I would have done it even without the $5,000 fee. <laughs> okay, good. Because <laughs> I don't know if we can all handle right. that next time. <laughs> Thank you. Sure. Pleasure. Thanks. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.